Hello, Sawbona, how's it? Molo, Jambo, and welcome to Every Nation Devon Podcast. We hope this message will inspire you and draw you closer to Christ. Enjoy. If you've got a, a Bible, you can just open it to the book of Psalms, chapter 20. Let's get into the Word for this morning. And uh, if you've just joined us, we are doing a series called Old School Gospel. Yeah. One amen. Cool. Old School Gospel. <laughs> the, uh, the church has changed a lot over the years, amen, and it needs to change, all right? So if you were in church 20, 30, 40 years ago, you will know that the way we do church today is very different to the way they did church back then. Things have changed. The music has changed. The clothes have changed. The, the format of service has changed. I mean, we even have online church now, and we have like WhatsApp groups where we're doing discipleship and stuff like that. So church has changed over the years. Why is it changing? Why is it not just staying the same all the time? Well, because the world is changing. The generation is changing out there, and the church needs to stay relevant. Church has to stay current. Church needs to always be in a position where people from the world can relate and understand and come into the church and feel like it's home and we're speaking their language. The Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all men that I might by all men reach some. So there is this change process that church has to go through. However, there are some things in church that should never change. And the one thing that should never change, no matter how much the music changes or the clothing changes or the style of worship changes, the thing that must never, ever, ever, ever change is the gospel. The gospel needs to stay old school. Amen? And when we say old school, we don't mean old-fashioned. What we mean is it needs to stay original. It needs to stay a part of the founding words of Jesus and the apostles. That's where the gospel needs to stay. We've been, we're a generation that's gone through so much change lately. And uh, just, you know, in the last 20, 30, 50 years, the world has changed radically. And this has put a lot of pressure on the church for the church to adapt and stay relevant and reach the generation that's, that's current. And unfortunately, in that, certain things that have, are, are, are part of the fabric of the gospel have been lost in our generation. Certain things are missing. Certain things you're not hearing very often. Certain words are not coming out that often when the gospel is preached. And so what we're doing in the series is we're looking at what are those words? You know, what are the words that make up the gospel, make it what it is that our generation actually doesn't like hearing or doesn't even want to hear? And let's pull those up and let's remind ourselves of what those is because they make up the fabric of what the gospel is. And so we looked last week at the word sacrifice. Can you say sacrifice? sacrifice. Woo! That was a tough one, hey? Not a word our generation wants to hear. Much rather hear blessing, purpose, destiny, grace, favor, you know? What about sacrifice? You know, the gospel is not only come and receive life, the gospel is also come and... Give your life. That's the whole gospel. It's not just about like receive, receive, give me, give me, give me. It's also about come and lay down our lives. And last week we learned that, you know what, the temple sacrifice was exchanged, but now that we have become the sacrifice. It wasn't exactly news we wanted to hear last week, eh? <laughs> but it's so important because it makes the gospel what it is. Um, another word is the word humility, all right? Sacrifice, humility. Another word is authority. What about morality? What about eternity? 
and a generation that just wants to live for the now and live your best life now, what about eternity? The gospel is all about your eternal life. And so we're calling up these words and we're looking at them and, uh, and we're celebrating them again, reminding ourselves of them so that we can be a church that is gospel-centered and living gospel-centered lives. Today, we want to call up the word humility. Can you look at somebody and say humility? Humility. humility. This word has become a yuck word in our generation. Wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, it's not really like humility. It's not, we, you don't really see humility celebrated, honored, praised. Wow, you're, so much humility. Why? Because we live in a generation and a time of self-glorification. We are a generation that is self-obsessed in so many ways. I mean, you only have to look at like the sports world to see that thing, or politics, or even the business world today. I mean, it's just self-actualization, self-glorification. We're a self-obsessed generation, and it's no more evident than when we look at social media, where we're posting our best photos in our best outfits, in our best moments, with our greatest achievements. Why? Because we want the whole world to see that we are awesome. Hey? And we want them to believe that we're awesome. <laughs> Psychologists call it ego. The Bible calls it pride. The opposite of it is humility. Humility is the antidote to this thing. Pride is described in the Bible as the original sin. It is the sin that God, Satan, cast out of heaven. It is the sin that turned angels into demons. It is the sin that Satan infected into Adam and Eve in the garden and got them expelled from the garden. It was the venom of pride. You will be like God. You will be amazing. You will be celebrated. You will be wise. You will be so awesome. And it infected the human race. And every misery that we experience in this world today is the result of somebody's pride or your own pride. The antidote to it is humility. Humility is part and parcel of the gospel. We cannot take the word humility out of the gospel. It's wrapped into the fabric of the gospel. It makes the gospel what the gospel is. You cannot enter into eternity. You cannot have salvation unless you humble yourself. Humility, then salvation. Every other grace and blessing and favor of God is linked to how humble you are. You can have nothing unless you humble yourself first. Humility is the key it's the secret to blessing, to favor, to the power of God. It's the blessing to salvation. It is, it is the road to salvation. It is, it is everything that we want in the kingdom is linked to this thing called humility. If we do not have it as a generation, we need to find it again, people. 
If it's been lost somehow in our generation of the self-obsessed, self-glorification culture that we live in, we as the people of God need to go digging into the Word and find this thing again because without it we have nothing in God. Nothing in God. You know, Isaiah, when he saw a picture of the throne room and he saw God high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple, his first response was, woe is me. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. People, we live amongst a people of unclean lips. People who glorify themselves, continually glorify anything and everything else but the king of glory whose robe fills the temple. We cannot think that we can live in a world that's so self-obsessed and, and, and pursuing self-glorification that somehow we haven't been affected or infected by this thing as well. I want to share with you today four power truths on what humility is. They come from Andrew Murray's book on humility, and I recommend the book to you. Andrew Murray is an old-school theologian, all right? We're going to a lot of old-school theologians in this series. He's one of those old-school theologians, South African-made theologian. And he wrote a book on humility, and, and out of that book, I've taken four truths that he shares about humility, and I'm going to share them with you today. And my hope is that as we share these four power truths with, to you, with you today, you're going to see how glorious this thing is called humility, that you're going to see that it's actually the mark of a disciple in Christ. You're going to see that it's actually Christ, that Christ came to bring humility. It was humility that Christ had in heaven that made him leave heaven and come to earth and take on the form of a, a human being and humble himself even into poverty and so that we too could understand the way into the kingdom. Humility is Christ. It's the mark of a disciple. And I hope that as I share these power truths with you today, it's going to shift something in your, in your spirit, man. And that shift is going to be a good shift. Maybe it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Maybe you're going to have a few ouch moments. Maybe you're going to be like, ah, this is too much, Pastor. I want to run out the room. That's a good thing. Know that this thing is the antidote. This thing is the answer to the struggles and the difficulties that you're facing. It's to humble yourself before God. I've never known anyone who's humbled themselves who has not received from God the breakthrough that they need in their lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray before we get into the Word. Father in heaven, we commit this time to you. We commit this moment to you, God. Lord, we believe that your Word brings life, healing, and direction. And we treasure your Word more than our daily bread. We boldly confess that our minds are alert, our hearts are receptive, and we say, speak, Lord for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, I was worried that Tim was going to preach my sermon today because we're going to look at the life of Jacob a little bit just in the intro here. <laughs> well, actually, I was quite hopeful. I could have like, just got up here and just said, hey, he said it all. Amen. <laughs> Let's go have coffee. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite funny when, when we look at the word, you know, there's, there's definitely, in the Bible, characters that we li like to identify with, 
Have you noticed that? Like, you know, men, we, we love David, hey? Yeah, Joshua, Nehemiah, Daniel. Very rarely do we ever want to identify with people like Doubting Thomas. Yeah? We, we don't really want to identify with, with Jacob as well. Ladies, we, we also, we, we, we want to identify with the Debras and the Priscilla's and the Mary's. Very, very few times do we ever want to identify with Martha, you know, who was too busy. But you know what? In these people, like in their weaknesses, so often what we see is ourselves. Sometimes more than the people that we like to identify with for our strengths. <laughs> Isn't that true? So often we are doubting way more than Thomas and deserve to be called Doubting Wayne or Doubting JR, yeah? <laughs> you don't want to be included in that, sorry. <laughs> so often, ladies, you, you don't want to, be see, you want to be seen as Mary at the feet of Jesus, not Mary rushing around doing da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but how often are you that Martha running around and not the Mary sitting at his feet? We don't like to identify with certain characters in the Bible, but there is a character, and his name is Jacob. I want to just talk about him for a moment this morning. It's not really the kind of guy that you want to get a prophetic word one day where someone says, you know what, I just feel like you're like Jacob. <laughs> like, no, undeasy. <laughs> I don't receive that word. <laughs> Put that on the shelf. <laughs> Jacob, as, as TM said this morning, I mean, his name means trickster, swindler, heel grabber. He comes out the womb grabbing his, his brother's heel, saying, no, I want to be first. You know, and, and that is who he is. You know, it's the firstborn that, that got the right of the blessing in those days. And so there he is, Jacob, like fussed behind his brother, holding on, you're not getting out before me. Comes out clutching. I don't know, midwives, have you ever seen anything like that? Where's Indiba this morning? Have you ever seen a baby clutch, a twin coming out clutching? No, it's never happened, eh? It's happened with Jacob, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking about something exceptional here, and that really is a picture of, of who this guy is. He comes out, and he's just like, I want the blessing. I want the favor of God. I mean, he's the epitome of the businessman who is hustling in all his strength, in all his wisdom to make that business work, you know, using every strategy, cutting every corner that he can. You know, Jacob tries to, to cheat his brother out of the birthright when his brother's at his weakest moment. Offers him the stew. Check this. Smell this, buddy. Smell this. Yeah, you want some? Yeah, okay, let's negotiate. How about that birthright? <laughs> His brother's starving. The guy's holding food. And he's like, wants to negotiate with him. I mean, what kind of guy is this, you know? And then he conspires with his mother to, to trick his dad, who's old and blind, can't really see too well, into pretending that he is his brother, even putting, like, hair on his arms, you know, so that you'll be, like, hairy like his brother. I mean, just, like, what lengths will you go to to get this thing out, you know? He is the epitome of someone striving in their flesh, Striving to make it work in their own ability. That's who Jacob is. And it's very interesting. He comes, it all catches up with him. And it comes to this moment where Jacob is um, going to go and meet his brother. And he's uh, going back home. And he hears that his brother is on his way to meet him. Not alone, but with 400 men. Now, the last time he met his brother, 
was when he was cheating his brother out of stuff. And he ran away from home. Why? Because his brother wanted to kill him back then. Now his brother's coming with 400 men. What's the first thing in Jacob's mind right now? I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead. Big brother's coming for me, and he's got 400 men. And so Jacob, you know, sends these gifts and his wives and his children first. To, to, <laughs> I don't know if that's... <laughs> I mean, you know, like on Father's Day, it's like, sit down, Jacob. You know, it's like... <laughs> sending his wife and children and everything. But then he's left alone, and there's this very interesting moment that takes place where Jacob wrestles with a man. And we know the man is God. And I mean, it's just like, what is going on in that passage? There's a lot of speculation about that, pa that passage because the, the, the scripture is not really explicit on what's going on in that moment. But my take on it is this, is that God is bringing Jacob to the place where Jacob is at the end of himself. He's left all alone. He's probably about to lose everything, probably about to lose his life. And here he is getting all that last bit of strength out. God is leading him into this place where he's, he's bringing him to a place of humility, to a place where he's at the end of himself. You know, some of us here are really tough nuts. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? I mean, we, we're really good at just going in our own strength all the time going in our own ability, on our own smarts, on our own strategies all the time, self-made, self-actualization, self-governed, you know, and like we're, we're never looking up for help. We're never looking into the Bible for help. We're never asking people to pray for us. We're never seeking the God. We're just we're trying to do this thing called life in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own smarts, trying to figure out ways to get around our problems in our own abilities until one day we come to the place like Jacob where all that we have is not enough. Where all that we have is actually just gone. And interesting, in this wrestling match, God touches the thigh of Jacob, actually dislocates his thigh, his hip, sorry. Dislocates his hip. You know, God was just showing who's God <laughs> in the moment. Dislocates his hip. Jacob falls to the ground, still clutching on, still won't let go. Still just like at the absolute end of himself and his own ability trying to make life work. And it's in that moment that God reaches and into him and there's this transformation that takes place. And he asks Jacob this very interesting question. He says, what is your name? What is your name? And the Bible says, in, in the Hebrew, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It, it says, in shock, in realization, and in a whisper, he said, Jacob. In shock, in realization, and in a whisper, he said, Jacob. In other words, nothing good. Trickster, swindler, weak, unrighteous, sinner, nothing good. That's who I am. He has a moment where he sees his weakness. He sees himself how he should see himself, how he should have seen himself his whole life. He comes to a moment where he literally sees who he actually is, and he sees God for who God is. And in that moment, he's transformed, he's changed. And God gives him 
a new name. You will no longer be Jacob, but your name is Israel from now on. Who is Israel? Israel is the people of God. That's who Israel is. Israel are the people who realize the frailty of their flesh. Israel is the people who do not depend on themselves. They are the people of God who trust in God, who look to God, who realize who they really are in their own flesh, and they realize who God is in all His might and in all His glory. Israel is the people that God can work with. That's why they're called the people of God. Are you in Psalm 20? Take a look at verse 7. If ever there was a banner that would describe Israel, if ever there was a war cry that they would sing over themselves, it would be this one. Let's read it together. What does it say? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust. Come on, let's say it again. Some may trust. Some. But we will trust in the name of our the Lord our God. If ever there was a distinguishing factor between them and the other nations, some, you know, people out there, people out there, some out there do this. They trust in money and fame and wealth and their own strength and their own intellect. They trust in the things of this world. They trust in their insurance. They trust in their businesses. They trust in medicine. They trust in I don't know, a healthy diet. They trust in, God, in exercising their bodies. They trust in things of this world. But we, the people of God, Israel, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you know this? That Israel was not actually allowed to make chariots. I mean, it, back in those days, a chariot was a powerful weapon of war. Chariot, you measured your, the strength of your army by chariots. Chariots were pulled on horses. They had like these cool weapons coming out of the wheels. You could travel really fast. They could transport soldiers really fast. They, you, could, you could have a man on the back of a chariot with sword and bow, and, and you could have maybe two or three guys sometimes. It was literally like a, like like a modern-day tank. Or like a like a, a MIG jet, okay? That's what and like God saying this to them, you you are not allowed to have chariots in your army was basically like saying to a modern day government or nation, you are not allowed to have tanks, and you're not allowed to have machine guns, and you're not allowed to have submarines. Thank you, Langa. <laughs> you're not allowed to have that. Why? Because your, your trust doesn't, must not rest in your own power and ability. I want your trust to rest in me. There were so many instances in the Old Testament where God continued to, to, to bring Israel to a place where they were just like, like in the days of Gideon, where there was an army of like 30,000. He brought it down to 300 men. He's like, yeah, yeah, now nah, I can work with 300. Why? Because he didn't want the, the 30,000 to go or the 3,000 to go into battle, and then they think, oh, we did it. God was continually trying to mold them into understanding that as the people of God, they trust in the name of God, nothing else. So they weren't allowed chariots. 
They weren't even allowed to have a census as well. Like, count their soldiers. God was like, no, you will not count your soldiers. It's like, we're going to go to war, God, but, yeah, it's like, don't count. Well, you know what I mean? Like, guys, we've got, I want you to buy this house. And you go to the bank accounts. We start counting. counting. We look at each other. How can we, how can we? No, I want you to trust in my name. I want you to trust in my name. The distinguishing mark of the people of God is that they're not trusting in stuff. They're trusting in God. Israel had to work six days and then rest a seventh day, which was completely foreign to all the other nations around them who were working just all the time. Working, 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 working. Not only that, after six years of work, they had to rest on a seventh year, a whole year. Don't we serve a great God? <laughs> work six years, take a year off. Imagine God came to you and said, take a year off. You'll be really happy, yeah? We'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then what? Tomorrow you're going to think, oh, where's the money going to come from? How am I going to pay rent this month? Yeah, come on, you're celebrating, but what's going to happen tomorrow? Them taking that year off, that day off, was a statement of faith that God is our provider, that God will do it, that even while we're sleeping, God is fighting battles out there and blessing us because He gives rest to the righteous. Hallelujah. He gives rest to those whom He loves. We will trust in the name of our God. Even they had to circumcise every male. Why? Was it a medical thing? No. The circumcision was a sign of the cutting of the flesh. And it was basically saying we do not trust in our own strength. We do not trust in the flesh. Our, our trust is in the name of our God. They were marked with circumcision. Circumcision was a, it was a symbol to them that the flesh, they, they're cutting the flesh off. They are separating themselves as a people of God. Resting on the sixth day, the, the seventh year, resting um, in, in their lives and in their businesses, trusting God, not having a big army. Their, their whole lives were meant to be built around trusting in God. That was their defining mark. And this is why after that encounter, Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. After that wrestling match, his hip was dislocated. Why is he walking with a limp thereafter? Because his flesh had been dealt a deathly blow. And from now on, it was symbolic of now I depend on God. I'm not going to be a self-made man anymore. I'm not going to try and do this in my own strength anymore. I'm not going to rely on my own smarts and my own wisdom. I'm not going to cut corners and manipulate and try and circle. You know, I'm not going to try to go up, around, around. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord. That, that limp was just a, a reminder of his dependency, his daily dependency on God. Broken man. Oh, but in a good way. How many of you can testify that God had to take you to a place of breaking before you saw who he is in your life? A place where, man, you're broken, but oh, it's so good. It's such a good place to be. I'm so broken. Hallelujah. Why? Because I'm just not in a place of trusting myself anymore. I'm not in a place of leaning on my own ability anymore. I'm leaning on who? I'm leaning on him from now on. You know, his life 
It was almost mirrored exactly when we go into the New Testament on this guy called Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's like almost like a mirror image of what happens. Saul was just like Jacob. I mean, a man full of his own strength and his own ability, the smartest in his class. You know, from the tribe of, of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, he was trained as a Pharisee, fervent in the law, he knew the scriptures backwards, rising to the top, rising into leadership, and then persecuting Christians because he was so fervent with the law. And then he has this encounter with God, <laughs> with Jesus on the way to Damascus. And it's interesting, in that encounter, he's blinded, and he's led into the city blind. I mean, can you imagine now? The strong man, who's always so self-reliant, now he's blind. Someone's leading him into the city. He can't see. Lie him down on a bed for three days. Eventually, God sends Ananias, a disciple, to come and pray for him. Ananias prays for him. And when he prays for him, it's interesting, the Bible says this, it seemed like scales fell from his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, I believe that the Apostle Paul saw correctly for the first time. What did he see? He saw that he's not the center of the world. <laughs> that it's not about his own strength and about his own ability. It's about God and what God can do with our lives. And in that moment, he too, like Jacob, was transformed from being a man who was self-reliant to being a man who was fully dependent on God. Look at these words that he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Look at these words, what Paul eventually pens down. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision. We, the people of God, who are of the circumcision. What circumcision is he talking about there? Not the natural one, the circumcision of the heart. We have been, we've cut the flesh is what he's saying. We've got no tie to the flesh anymore. We who serve God by His Spirit. We serve God how? By His Spirit, who boasts in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. That is the Christian life right there, man. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in horses and chariots and my bank account and my insurance and my whatever, my confidence is where? It's in the Lord. And this is where we meet our word humility. <laughs> this is where we see this word humility coming to life. Andrew Murray said the following. He said, humility is simply acknowledging the truth about who we are and yielding to God his rightful place. Isn't that beautiful? Could you just say that today? Humility is? And yielding his rightful place. Acknowledging the truth of who we are and yielding to God his rightful place. You know, there's this wonderful discourse in the Bible between Job and God. And I mean, I, I don't know, let's, I just want to go to Job quickly, if we could go there in your Bibles. Where is Job? Somewhere in the Old Testament, yeah. <laughs> sure, babe, this Bible's been used, yeah. Can you find me Job here, darling? There we go, I got it, I got it, I got it. Thank the Lord. It'd be bad if pastors can't find the scriptures. All right. And he has this encounter. Job has this amazing, you know, Job went through some stuff, eh? 
In chapter 38, the Lord then answered Job. And, um, and he says, just in verse 4, he says the following. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? <laughs> you know, we can have all these questions to God. Why aren't you doing this? Why, are you, you know, why, why did this happen to me? What's going on in this world? Why aren't you doing what I think you should be doing? Why, 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 why? <laughs> Just like, what? <laughs> Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Then he goes on, he says, verse 5, he says, Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? That's a good question. Like, why, how, why doesn't the earth just fall out into space? It's just staying where it is, you know? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted with joy, Verse 12, have you ever commanded the morning to appear? <laughs> have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like a clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. <laughs> and he carries on for another two chapters, just firing these questions away at Job. And Job eventually answers in chapter 40, and he says, you know what? God, I'm nothing. You are everything. I acknowledge who you are, how wise you are, how powerful you are, and I won't say too much anymore. Humility is acknowledging the truth of who we are, and it's yielding to God his rightful place. You know, when you're driving in your car and you see that sign, the yield sign, what does it mean? Pause, stop, why? And allow somebody else has got right of way. And when Andrew Murray talks about yielding to God, this is what we do in order to show humility is we, we stop, we pause, and we allow God to go first. Yielding means we hold ourselves back and we say, God, what do you want to do with my life? When we wake up in the morning before the day comes at us and attacks us with all those thoughts and all those to-dos and everything, what do we do? We just the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why is that? Well, because God created the universe and everything in it. And all of it he created for his own pleasure and for his own glory. Everything in this universe points to God's glory. Everything, it's this, we live in a glory story. Everything is pointing to him and giving him praise and giving him glory. And as soon as there is something else that wants to get glory, it's like God's immune system kicks in. <laughs> you know, just like your body has an immune system, like when a virus steps into your body, what does your immune system do? It kicks into action and it hunts that virus and it kills that virus. 
So God has like a glory immune system, okay? If there's something in this universe that is trying to exalt anything other than God, God resists it. That's what pride is. Pride is self-glorification, living life without God. That is the epitome of what pride is. As soon as there's that thing, God resists it. I mean, think about, you know, as soon as Satan started saying, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. What happened? He was resisted, and he was thrown out of heaven. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar started walking around his palace and saying, wow, look at this kingdom created for my glory and my honor and my praise amongst the nations. What happened? The immune system of God kicked into action and made Nebuchadnezzar go and eat grass for seven years before his senses came back to himself and he lifted up his eyes and he glorified God again. And then God restored him. God has an immune system, a glory immune system. Look at the Tower of Babel. What are they like? Ah, let's build a name for ourselves. What happened? Immune system kicks in. God comes and immediately scatters them all over the earth. That's not going to happen. King Uzziah, you know, his heart became proud and lifted up, and he thought, well, I can go into the temple as a king, and I can offer sacrifices as well. What happened? He got struck with leprosy. God's immune system kicked in. King Herod one day stood in all his royal apparel, and he came and gave this incredible address, and everybody was like, wow, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And what does it say in Acts chapter 8? That? An angel of the Lord struck him, and he was eaten by worms, but the word of the Lord multiplied. There is an immune system here that God has where he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So this is the law. It's without humility we cannot have God. It is the gate through which we enter the kingdom of God. And you know, so often we look at these guys in the Bible and we go, yo, you know, geez, King Herod, he was so bad. King Uzziah, poof, dude. That guy, Tower of Babel, those people make a name for ourselves. How could they do that? How could they do that? But we like, we do the same in our own lives. We do that almost every single day. Let me go and make a name for myself. We so look for recognition, likes, admiration from people. We so want to be beautiful, strong, adored, worshipped. Come on, guys. When there's a group photo taken and the photographer turns around and says, look at the picture, what do you do? Where am I? <laughs> you don't even see anybody else. It's like, what do I, what do I look like, hey? <laughs> Guys, I want you to see that we are riddled with this thing. We are riddled with pride. It is a spiritual power that, that is at work, and it needs to be resisted, and we need to root it out. The problem with pride is this, is that it is so lethal. Remember, God resists the pride. I don't know about you, but I don't want God resisting me. I'd rather, much rather get the grace of God on my life. You know, sometimes we think that it's the devil. <laughs> it, might, it might just be your pride that's being resisted. 
God, why, why is this not working? I, I'm getting resistance. Well, just humble yourself and, and trust the Lord for an answer. Because <laughs> he resists the proud. We must see that it's a spiritual power at work. It's a lethal power. And the problem with it is that it's so hidden. We don't see it in ourselves. We so see it in other people. <laughs> Phew, that's a lot of pride right there. Yeah, that was a big pride statement. But like, how often do we see ourselves in conversations defending ourselves or glorifying ourselves or justifying ourselves? What's coming out of our mouths? I'm important. I'm special. I'm whatever. What, what is that thing in us that is looking for that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, last scripture I'll share with you this morning. It says the following. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What has happened to unbelievers? Why are they not here this morning? Why are they not in your connect group? Why are they not coming to the Bible and reading it? Why? Because their minds have been blinded by the God of this world. What exactly has the God of this world blinded them with? Nothing but themselves. Me and my life and my place in this world. What is it that stops you from seeing God? It's that you just keep seeing yourself. <laughs> You're just thinking about yourself all the time. What is it that stops you from seeing other people? You. <laughs> you just keep looking for you. You're so busy with yourself and your life and your plans and your stuff that you don't even notice other people around. We don't even see God at work in our lives. Where are the words of John the Baptist in our generation? I must decrease and he must increase. People, I want us to know that the way to hell is the way of pride. It's entitlement, it's self-worship, it's self-actualization, it's self-adoration, it's living as we please, doing as I please. Without humility, we cannot have God, we cannot have salvation, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And we must know this morning that humility doesn't just happen. We have to value it. We have to seek it. We have to go after it. We have to pray for it. We have to watch our hearts. We have to keep each other accountable on it. We must never trust that, that sneaky venom called pride. It's taken down so many great men and women of God throughout the ages. We look at the book of Kings and we see it, successful, amazing, going somewhere, and then their heart got lifted up with pride, and it all came crashing down. If you think that you don't need to read your Bible today, just remember that that's pride. If you think that you don't need to pray today, or you don't need that prayer meeting, I want you to know that's pride. <laughs> oh, you don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Hey, why, do we, why is prayer so difficult for us? Why is like the prayer meeting like the least supported meeting in most churches except our church? <laughs> Pride. <laughs> why is it? Because prayer is an expression of humility. To pray is to be humble. When you're praying, you're declaring that you can't do it that you're trusting in God. Why is it the one thing that the church, that's the thing, prayer? 
because it's the ultimate expression of humility. If you think that you don't need Connect this week, you'll give it a pass, go next week, I want you to remember that that's pride. When you think you don't need accountability, like you can just manage on your own, you can get through life by yourself, don't need somebody else walking with you, holding you accountable, I want you to know that that is pride. When you think that you don't need to tithe, I want you to know that's pride. When you feel like you think you don't need to obey the Great Commission and go and make disciples, I want you to know that that's pride. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. It's like there's, there's these rules for some, but then there's like me, you know. I, I, Jesus, I get special. Some, I get special, you know. Like you, you know me, you know my heart. You know, there's rules like because uh, they are them, you know, and they need all of that. But like for me, I have my own like thing with you, huh? My own special thing. That's pride. It's pride. You're exalting yourself. Rather choose humility. When you think there's not much more you can learn from God or you've been a Christian for a long time, so you don't really need the BFC, I want you to know that's pride. <laughs> I could go on and on, hey? Thank you for tuning in. For more messages like these and other resources, you can visit our website at endurban.org. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel to stay up to date with the latest sermon. Be blessed.